Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 33 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Right, so this episode was a great one. This guy, John Waller, owner of Humble Nut Butters, check this out. Whew, look at that packaging, that is beautiful. So Humble Nut Butters, let's let that focus. Humble Nut Butters is this awesome local company. They are doing really high-end nut butters with like really savory ingredients. John noticed a gap in the market that all nut butters were either sweet or like salty. There was no there's no like savory option. And so him and his wife founded Humble Nut Butters. To tie it into a coffee podcast, he also worked for Intelligentsia for two years. And he has a really cool backstory, really smart business guy. And so there's a lot of information, a really like, just, just a jam-packed episode full of his background at Groupon and then Intelligentsia, back to a tech startup. Worked for Enterprise out of college. Really cool story about how he got to where he is. Uh, just got into Whole Foods with Humble Nut Butters. It's it's really a great episode. So I will shut up and say enjoy. All right. I am here with co-founder and CEO of Humble Nut Butters, John Waller. Uh, I explained how I met him in the intro or the intro I will record. Uh, is this your first podcast? Ah, uh, it's my second. Second podcast. Okay, let me turn. I'm gaining super high over here, so let me go lower down a little bit there. So second podcast. So we don't have to go through stuff. Uh, it's very conversational, very laid back. Uh, I first met you back when we were at Modest Brewing for the uh, Northern Coffee Alliance event where we were sampling our, I was sampling cold brew for Filterra. You were sampling humble nut butter. And I was like, came over and just like really high-end nut butters with like really interesting spices with like a depth of flavor that was really intriguing to me. And so let's not start at Humble Nut Butter because I know some things about you that let's get to Humble Nut Butter. Like what has your professional career been that led to the point of starting Humble Nut Butter? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it, man. <laughs> Feels very radio. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Um, so I've spent my entire career in sales and sales leadership. I've worked for five companies, um, you know, some large private companies, some fun, quirky startups. Uh, I worked for Intelligentsia Coffee, which you've probably heard of. Um, they make some, you know, high-end, premium quality, third-wavy coffee, Rob, right up your alley. Heard of them once or twice. Yeah, right. Um, and then went to work for another tech startup, and then I sold some supply chain software, and, and uh, it's been a great career. But the older I've gotten, I've realized, okay, like what I've done thus far hasn't really been that fulfilling. I've met some great people. I've learned a ton along the way. Um, but I've also thought about my life and, you know, certain patterns in my life. And some of the best decisions I've made in my life have been when I've made a bet on myself. And so that's one reason I'm, I'm sitting here today is because we made the decision, my wife and I, uh, for me to leave my job and go all in on, on Humble full time. And so you're referring to all these other, what was your length in time? So where are you originally from? I was born in Iowa, okay. a small town called Algona, Iowa, mm -hmm. North Central. I've biked through there before. Have you really? On Regbra, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. It would probably take you like 30 seconds to bike through. Yeah. Well, for me, th like 38, 39. <laughs> um, and then we moved to Ames, Iowa. And uh, from there, we moved to Washington State, 
my dad was in the newspaper industry, and so he got a, a good opportunity to be a publisher of a paper uh, in southwest Washington, so right between Seattle and Portland. Moved there when I was in fifth grade, stayed there until I graduated high school, went to the University of Kansas for college, because my older brother and sister both went to KU from Iowa. I fell in love with it as a young kid. It's the only school I applied to. So in 99, graduated high school, moved to Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, after I graduated from, from KU, I lived in KC for four years um, and then moved to Chicago, which is probably the single best decision that I've ever made. So moved to Chicago, it was 09, uh, in a recession, left my first job, which is with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Mm -hmm. Great place to start your career. Um, you know, they're known for their management training, but they're also great for their diverse hiring practices. And um, I was in a B2B sales role. So I was leading, um, uh, I had my own book of business where I was selling uh, program vehicles back to car dealerships. <laughs> so I had like 45 franchise car dealerships in my territory. And I had a little bit more independence and autonomy than, than most, um, you know, earlier in their career at Enterprise, but I knew I didn't want to do it forever. And Chicago, you know, I fell in love with Chicago too. The first time I ever visited was probably in middle school. And it was a goal of mine to live there. And finally I said, F it. Like if I don't do this now, I'm never gonna do it. So I quit my job in a recession. People thought I was crazy. You, you're gonna like this though. Um, I was quoting Thoreau. And one of the best quotes I've ever, I've ever heard. Uh, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionability of man to elevate his life by conscious endeavor. And that's what I was doing. I was elevating my life. It was a conscious endeavor or a calculated risk and worked Damn. out well. I'm actually just, getting chills. It just got really. <laughs> I know, dude. Yeah. It's the coffee you gave me. I'm just ready to rock. <laughs> um, so that was a great decision. I lived with my brother and, and his new uh, wife at the time. They're still married. I'm, but sure, they were, they was, were yeah, I'm sure he was thrilled about that. Yeah, right. Like she totally did her, her new husband a favor by letting his brother stay with them. Um, they're, they're awesome people. They live in Lincoln Square, a great neighborhood in Chicago. I lived there for, I think, three months. I read about Groupon in the Chicago Tribune when they were brand new. And I was kind of blown away by their business model, both uh, as, a, as a consumer and then also as a merchant. And um, LinkedIn was pretty new at the time. And I found the, the CEO and, and founder on LinkedIn and uh, had to work him a bit until he let me in basically. And um, so it's a long way of, of uh, explaining where I'm from, but we moved from Chicago yeah, five years ago. And so that, that was like 2009 you did that? Yeah, moved, to, moved from KC to Chicago in 09. And then I uh, spent about six years in Chicago, met my wife in Chicago. And was Groupon growing during this time of the recession? Was this something that the recession was hitting them or were they growing because it was kind of, it was a very innovative business model at the time? It was a very innovative business model that spawned from the recession because these merchants needed bodies, right? right? And, and consumers wanted the deal. And it wasn't your typical discount shop or restaurant that was offering this. It was like a great place where you would actually want to go for 50% off or more in some cases. And so like it was this win-win and it was incredible, man. It was a fun, quirky, uh, super dynamic startup. And then, you know, we started building towards our IPO and we got a little bit more organized and grown up. We had the IPO, um, post IPO, you know, all those transformations within one organization uh, was basically like four different companies. 
and I've got you know dear friends that I'll have forever because of because of Groupon. It's well, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me of this article I just read because I've been doing quite a bit of research into the 2009 recession. I it's when I was fresh out of college. Uh, and so I don't know that I was even fully aware. Like once I got my job at Sam Adams, it was 2009 and the recession was kind of on the upswing. So I, I don't think it affected me a ton personally. And so I've been doing a lot of my own research into like the effect it's had on business and culture and to, to try to, and this was again, a week ago and things have changed since then, but try to get a feel for what might happen with the economy, what might happen. And one of the interesting tangents I got on was the effectiveness of new strategies and getting more aggressive during downturns. And then also specifically to what the reason I'm bringing this up is you found a job during a recession. Yeah. And that seems really counterintuitive, but anyone that knows me knows I love that. And the reason I like that move is that if you get hired by a company when things are amazing and thing and the economy is awesome, everybody looks like they're doing really well. Yeah but your job security is very low if things get bad. If you're hired by a company when there's a recession, when things are bad, when business shouldn't be good, your job security and your position in that company is probably more important because they're probably being very, very picky about who they're hiring, who they're working with. And one of my favorite quotes about something like that is uh, somebody I used to work for at Sam Adams said that, uh, when the tide goes down, it'll, uh, it'll show who's not wearing a swimsuit. <laughs> and so when the tide of the economy goes down, yeah. it really does expose. And then businesses like Groupon that you were hired for. And so it does seem counterintuitive, but if, if you, and see, here's the big, if, if you can find a job, right. <laughs> and that's the totally. big if hundred percent, but if you can find a company that values what you do. And so what was your role at Groupon? What were you doing there? You went from B2B sales at Enterprise, yeah. moved to Chicago with no job lined up and went to Groupon. What was your pitch as like, this is why you should hire me? You know, my job after I left Enterprise was to find a job. Chicago is an incredible city, as you know, uh, you know, so, you know, you could still go out and party and go to Lollapalooza and play in the intramural so th This means we lived in Chicago the exact same time because I, I moved there. Yeah, I moved there June of 2009. Did you really? Yeah, I worked for Sam Adams. I lived in Bucktown. I think I moved there in, oh, really? Yeah. I was there in May. Hilarious. <laughs> we probably crossed paths at one point. Um, so, you know, I had the autonomy that I could, I could, I could go to Lollapalooza or, or whatever and have fun, but, but I would still wake up early every day and, you know, hustle until I found a job. Um, my pitch to Groupon, at this point, they had some funding behind them and they were rapidly expanding and it was a complete market grab uh, or land grab for market share. And uh, I, sh I told them at that point, I had four legitimate years of both leadership and sales experience. And if you can sell to car dealers, you know, really you can sell anything. Uh, so that's what really I, I cut my teeth in, in sales doing is negotiating with owners and GMs of car dealerships that will negotiate down to the penny. They will not answer your calls. They will not answer your emails. So I would, well, can I say ass on here? Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would walk my happy ass into the dealerships because they wouldn't answer, right? And I could see them like rolling their eyes as I would park my vehicle and walk in, but um, it toughened me up and uh, forced me to, to think about things like value propositions and handling objections and not letting your ego get in the way and things like that. So um, my pitch to Groupon was, you know, listen, if you're gonna hire an account executive, which is the role um, that, you know, I can do this, absolutely. Even though this is a brand new concept that people really haven't wrapped their heads around, 
I know how to connect with people, even if it's remote. So the office was in Chicago, but we launched um, Nashville and Portland simultaneously. And because I grew up an hour and a half north of Portland, um, they assigned me to Portland. I had some familiarity with that market. Um, and so that I think also helped me. And in, in, after I had the phone screen with their director of HR, who's still a great guy to this day, his name is Dan Jessup. Uh, he probably won't listen to this, but great dude and hilarious. Oh, like him. no, he probably will. We have a huge Of course, <laughs> of course he will. He's in New York. Um, so he let me in and then I presented to some of the other founders. And um, so because they were in a complete land grab, uh, they also realized quickly that they needed leadership. They were hiring swaths of people every month. And um, I got tapped by the SVP of sales you know, as they were looking for more divisional sales managers, they had two at the time, two great people I'm still friends with. Um, and I said, absolutely. Like I, at that point in my career, I, I, I had enough sales experience, I thought, and I wanted more leadership experience. And uh, I said, absolutely, I would, I would love to take on a leadership role. And they said, okay, well, you're gonna manage three markets. We'll give you like a week or two, we'll see how it goes. And like a week later, they said, by the way, here's like seven more markets because I think they got more funding. I didn't, I didn't see necessarily what, like everything that was going on, but things were moving so dynamically uh, that they gave me seven new cities. And uh, at that point I was managing like New Orleans and Pittsburgh and Dallas and Vancouver, BC. And eventually as they scaled, they brought in more leaders. Uh, we regionalized. So I ended up managing the Pacific Northwest markets. Um, and, and at this time, were they giving you a lot of direction and training on how to handle these markets or were you leaning a lot in your past experience or just intuition? Uh, mainly past experience and intuition. But as we scaled, we would hire our sales trainers and refine our pitch mm -hmm. and we would develop merchant tools because a lot of the merchants got totally overwhelmed, right? Like hundreds of people showing up at the same time, right. running out of food, Yelp reviews spiraling out of control. Like there was some disasters, some major disasters that we learned the hard way. Yeah. Um, so initially I, I relied on my experience and some instincts and then they refined them over time. Yeah, um, I can't imagine that where somebody, you're trying to sell to them, you're trying to sell them to get them to use the service, but you also have to sell and almost be like wary that, hey, this might go really, really, really well. You should be prepared for that. And that would sound to me, I'd be like, this is the most bogus sales pitch ever. Somebody's like, you got to be prepared if this is too successful. But it's a very real thing when you're making any moves of like, what is the best case scenario? Because that can put you under two. Right. And, right. And I remember reading about that with Groupon is I yeah. remember specifically there's like a cupcake shop. That's some yeah. article and she's like, I went out of business because it was, well, first of all, the deal was too good for her to sustain. There was right. the first issue. But she's like, oh, I'll just run this short promo yeah. for a week and it'll be online deliveries of cupcakes. But she was losing money on the deal and it was a nationwide deal that it put her under because she had yeah. to fulfill these orders. Yeah, we learned the hard way um, and we got better and gave you know merchants more tools and preparation. Uh, we extended some of the deals beyond 24 hours initially. Um, we allowed them to be a little bit more restrictive too. Initially it was, listen, it's all, the gloves are off. Let, let's make this the absolute best deal possible. And I think some of that was fueled by that, the psychology that we had from the recession. People wanted the deal and businesses needed it, right? Uh, but then we, we, we slowly started like tapering that a bit and said, all right, well, we can't go that aggressive. And so were you living in Chicago during this entire time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
lived all over Chicago, lived uh, for three months in Lincoln Square with, mm-hmm. with my brother and his wife, uh, and then moved to Lakeview. And then uh, I met this beautiful young lady who's now my wife, um, luckily enough for me. And I kind of followed her towards the Gold Coast slash Old Town neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then we- I moved there too. <laughs> did you really? Where about? In 2010, uh, in Old Town. Hilarious. Like what, <laughs> what, what, what streets? I don't even remember this okay. point. Um, <laughs> Lindell? Lindell Boulevard? Could have been. I don't know. <laughs> I was on um, south of Wells. Yeah, we were right by my, each other then. My <laughs> wife at the time was living on State and Schiller, and I was actually mm-hmm. on Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, Clark and Burton, actually. But yeah, so I was like right between Gold uh, Gold Coast and Old Town. And then we moved into together in Lakeview, mm. got married, uh, and then moved to Wicker Park and had our daughter, Maeve. And uh, we quickly realized instantly that I don't know if we can sustain the, the family dynamic in the heart of the city. Mm-hmm. Like we're sharing walls with neighbors. We had, can I say the S word? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we had some shitty neighbors, um, especially, you know, the one above us and like, you know, would, would be up at all hours of the night and we had a newborn. So we, we just decided that this is not going to work. And um, we looked at you know, other more family-friendly neighborhoods in Chicago. We looked at Evanston. We looked at uh, other suburbs. We looked at Denver, Boulder, and then Minneapolis was on our radar just from a livability perspective and, and the values uh, that we knew of in, that were in Minneapolis. Um, and my dad had since retired from Washington State to northern Minnesota, and that was really the impetus for us mm. to move here. So, um, yeah. And I just started networking, and, and when we decided to move to Minneapolis, like we just made the decision, like this is best for our family, let's let's do it. And part of that decision was that you're going to leave Groupon too, or were you trying to get them to be able to support your move as well? So I left Groupon to go to Intelligentsia Coffee. What year was that? Uh, that would have been like 2012. And how the heck do you go from Groupon to high-end specialty coffee? <laughs> right. Um, Groupon was an incredible ride. So this this is a bit of a, a, a rebound backwards. So this is a couple. Is this before or after you've had y- your child? Yeah, we're, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. This is before I had Be- my child. Because I don't know. If, this is a coffee podcast. Yeah. So intelligentsia. Our listeners are like, wait, what? Did yeah. you skip over? More. You skip over How that part? You? Yeah. Um, so after after Groupon, yeah, I went to Intelligentsia Coffee to be the director of sales. I found out about that opportunity through a recruiter. But the brand itself, uh, I was captivated by. I lived, when I lived in Lakeview, I lived close to their Broadway location, which is their first ever store. Yeah, the flagship location. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I lived like right across the street from a caribou. And of course, there was a couple Starbucks around. And, um, you know, I was, I was, at that point, I was not a coffee aficionado. I'm still not, but um, I drink it daily and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a consumer and I pay attention to CBG now. We'll get into that. But, um, I was I was captivated by how Intelligentsia handled the coffee making process, uh, the outline of their stores, how they merchandised things, their focus on quality. Um, I was fine paying more for a cup of coffee because there, it was the experience and the quality of the cup, and I hadn't tasted coffee that bright. Yeah, and, and like that, f- that forward, yeah. and that's the crazy thing we face with Folly still is that it's like. The, the coffee tastes better. It's 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 funny because you say you're across from a caribou. Obviously, you've had Starbucks, and you hear the debate of people like Starbucks versus caribou. And I go, 
at that point, you're just debating like which one makes you feel better, which one feels like the marketing approach. The coffees are pretty dang similar. And so when a new coffee comes along, and that exact experience I had is tasting uh, Sump down in St. Louis was like, oh, wait a second. Th this is what coffee is? Yeah. And Intelligentsia is one of those amazing brands that I don't know how, but they are scaled in such a way, but the quality has not tapered. And Never. if it has, it's not much. Right. And that... Just thinking of the science of roasting is pretty damn impressive. They have really talented people over there. They do. So does this recruiter reach out to you first and then you look into it and go taste the coffee? Or were you you were fully aware of it because you're by that Broadway location? I was fully aware of it. And, you know, they've got a strong following. They're not as they weren't as big at the time as they are now. And of course, they've been they've been bought um, by Pete's. Uh, but at the time, you know, if if you paid attention to, I would say, you know, chef-driven restaurants or high-end bars like um, the Aviary or the Violet Hour in Wicker Park across from Big Star, um, you knew about Intelligentsia, right? And so I'd already been aware of them and I was a fan. Like I would go there every Sunday. Uh, this is pre-kids. I could r wake up whenever I wanted to go and have a croissant, have some coffee, I'd read the paper. And you know, it was a great way to start the day. And that was my routine. And, and I knew this recruiter already because at that point I knew that, that I wasn't going to be at, at Groupon much longer. It was just time for a change. Um, they made me aware of this position and I jumped on it. It was a, it was a, a sexy title. It was um, a new opportunity to get into a new industry with a brand that uh, I, I, I liked and respected. And so uh, on paper, it was, it was a great opportunity. Give me a second just to check this thing out. Yeah. Make sure that that's still recording. This is still recording. And we're back uh, with a drastically reduced video quality of John's section. <laughs> so sales recruiter, sexy title, intelligentsia, you know the coffee, you know the brand. What do they approach you with? How do, how do they kind of, what's appealing about it to you? Um, to be the director of sales, to, to tap into my sales experience, to represent a brand that I really respected and, and consumed myself. And, and, and so team. at this point, Intelligentsia, now you look at it and you go, okay, this is this national brand. It's owned by Pete's Coffee. Like if you're into coffee, you've probably heard of it. They're th what I consider to be the lead specialty coffee. Yeah. And I use specialty coffee very different than how like Starbucks uses it. But the, the biggest of the, you know, the, the small businesses in, in a way, not that they're a small business, but you get my point here. Um, at that point, were they national? Would you consider them more of a regional brand? And when they hired you, what was the strategy behind it? What were they saying that your major responsibilities would be? They were national. Yeah. So uh, roasting facility in their headquarters in Chicago, <clears throat> they had a roastery in LA with a sizable staff there and then their own cafes. So cafes in Chicago, LA, they had a roasting facility in San Francisco, plans to build out there for, for retail. And then in New York, they had uh, a training lab and then uh, a sales presence there. And then we had some sales representation in Atlanta. Um, so uh, great opportunity. Um, company had been through some transformations, you know, and, and wanted to really, uh, I think, catapult growth, right? Both in terms of retail, so adding new cafes. Uh, so while I was there, we added a bunch of new cafes. We focused on grocery. Uh, a la a little store called Target. Mm -hmm. and Familiar with that brand. You've heard of them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it starts mm -hmm. with a T. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, and then on my side was uh, wholesale, right? Independent cafes, restaurants, and then food service. Hospitality, <clears throat> higher education, hotels, 
Uh, we also had a big distribution side of the business as well, uh, and with respective leadership over those teams. But I was leading um, our wholesale educators, which were former baristas. Uh, some were former intelligentsia baristas. Some were former, you know, independent coffee shop baristas. Uh, where we would train our new accounts. And what was that? I want to pause there. What was it like working with those folks? Because if you're a coffee nerd, the Intelli barista team, who they send to the barista competitions every year, just when you go through the laundry list of winners from that company, it's pretty staggering. What was that like working with those baristas uh, when you're sales minded, especially? I'm sure that when you're talking expanding wholesale, expanding grocery, a lot of those baristas probably hear the word grocery and it sends a shudder down their spine. What was it like working with them? And uh, what was their, was, was there kind of a give and take between sales and the, you know, the barista that wants everything to be perfection with the coffee? Yeah, I, I think you know, there's a little bit of friction, right? I mean, no organization is without friction. Um, so I think where the alignment was is that we all recognized and celebrated how, you know, quality focused intelligentsia was. And then with their, their role in direct trade being created, mm -hmm. you know, with a lot of the work that Jeff Watts did, um, we were all, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid to varying degrees, mm -hmm. right? But you're right. I mean, there, there were some different languages. You know, the first time I ever sat around a cupping table, like I was a little overwhelmed. I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you could detect notes of persimmon in your coffee. Mm -hmm. Like that was totally foreign to me, right? So um, I needed to get educated to speak the language. Uh, and that's what I kind of leaned on my team for, uh, specifically our wholesale educators. And then we had account managers that would, ex that would handle existing business uh, just maintain relationships, make sure that uh, our customers were getting what they needed, orders were going through, they were delivered on time, and then we had uh, account executives going after new business. Um, and, you know, that's where I tried to tap into my, you know, kind of prospecting approach or territory development. How do you work a region? <clears throat> How do you pitch? You know, so that was a relatively new concept mm -hmm. for Intelligentsia because uh, most of the, you know, at that point, they were built on their cafes, yeah. which are incredible, right? Uh, and that's the reason like they're, they have this cult-like following because their coffee is so damn good and their cafes are exquisite. Um, but taking the wholesale brand, and, you know, the packaged coffee to the mass market yeah. was, was my focus. And that's a, that's a tough thing in coffee is when the cafe is your focus, your standards for quality are perfection. They're like way up here and your expectation for everything is that it tastes perfect. And there's almost this hesitancy to, or this hesitation, I should say, to hand your coffee off to someone because you're like, oh, those aren't Intelli people or those aren't my people. They won't know how to do this coffee justice. But I, I tend to view it on the other side that if the standard for coffee in the market in general is way down here, can we give our coffee, which is already going to be a step up, educate it, get it to go another step up. And it might not be that perfection, but it's going to be way better and hopefully somebody tastes it and goes, why is this better? And starts to think about it. And so was Intelligentsia in the equipment game? So when you're going to independent customers, could you off offer the full equipment lineup? Yep, we would. Yeah, we'd install, maintain, fix, and, you and, name it. And so what, what, what was your, looking back on it at Intelligentsia, what do you think was the strongest kind of like hook, line, and sinker for a new independent cafe about why they should, should serve Intelligentsia? 
I think name recognition and the cachet there, uh, because it carried so much weight. I mean, specifically in Chicago and, and L.A. because of our cafes. Yeah. But, you know, we also landed some incredible accounts like Ground Support and Gasoline Alley in New York. Um, you know, incredible shops run by good people. Uh, we had great accounts, independent cafes all over the country. Um, even in Traverse City, Michigan, right? Great account. Uh, and so, you know, we developed great relationships and these are places that you would want to go and have a cup of coffee mm -hmm. if you're traveling, right? Uh, and so that, I think, further manifested into like the, the strength of the brand image. Um, and then what I tried to bring to the table was more of a an approachable, collaborative type of arrangement, right? We're known for having good coffee, but it's one thing to have good coffee, but you also have to provide good service. Mm -hmm. and you need to, need to be approachable and humble in how you do that. Uh, and so that's what I tried to have you know our team focus on. And uh, yeah, we I mean we tried to grow as much as we could, and you know we had some some major accounts that we landed and. You know, there's some battles that we lost, of course, because the coffee industry is competitive and there's a lot of great third oh, wave. It's not competitive. Super, <laughs> super easy. It's not idle hard work. It's fine. Right. You've uh, spoken like a, like a former football player. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and so you're there for two years. Is it ultimately you wanting to move to Minneapolis or Minnesota uh, because you have a new young family? Is that the ultimate uh, factor that led to you leaving Intelli? I think they went through so much transformation in such a short period of time. Um, that it led to a lot of hard decisions happening at the company. Um, you know, they had aspirations at that point. You know, they'd, they'd been at it for twenty some years, right? And I think had aspirations for an acquisition. And when that happens, you have to make a lot of challenging decisions from a staffing perspective. Uh, you know, led by the financials, right? And so, um, a lot of the leadership team. You know, there was some attrition there, and. Um, you know, I had a buddy that had been in my ear for a while uh, from Groupon that had started another tech startup in Chicago. And so around that time, when, when my time was ending at Intelligentsia, uh, my buddy tapped me and said, hey, like we need somebody to be the GM um, for one of our new markets. And so that was this, around the same time that they were acquired by Pete's is kind of what caused that? The acquisition happened after that, but mm. we were we were moving the, the culture and the rumblings were already there yeah i mean we were putting all those those efforts in place you know for the acquisition to happen so at this point you've been in a startup with extreme growth you've been in kind of like a mid-sized company with heavy growth and then you end up at this tech startup again what was it like going back to kind of ground one or square one uh what stage was that company in yeah, that's a great question. And keep in mind, Enterprise was the first, right? So privately oh, yeah. held like a $15 billion company, right? right. Massive and, and very stable, right? And then to fun, quirky startup, then like this kind of heritage coffee brand, you know, kind of with the boutique feel. And I went back to uh, a tech startup. At that point, I realized I love the energy in a startup. Um, at Groupon, we had a sense of camaraderie. Even There was friction there, though. Two, of course, right? Specifically with the editorial team who was doing the write-ups to represent these merchants and then the sales team, right? And Groupon was known for being very quirky and irreverent and politically incorrect with their humor, right? Um, so I, lo I love the energy of a startup. You have to be disruptive. You have to be a little defiant. You have to have some audacity to think that you can pull this off when no one's done it before. I find that energizing. And um, they followed a lot of the playbook that we learned from Groupon. And the web inter interface was very similar. It's a company called Kapow. 
which is essentially Airbnb, but for uh, client entertainment. That's the classic small business pitch. Totally. Is, we're the Airbnb, but for this. We're the Uber, but totally. for this. We only have an hour, Rob, so I want to make this uh, you know, succinct. We can, we can go over it. <laughs> right. I know that analogy is used a lot, though. No, no. but the, So ex- say the analogy again. <laughs> Airbnb, but for client entertainment. Okay. And so what service was missing in the market that this, that this is filling? Yeah. So um, we created marketplaces. So if you wanted to host your colleagues or your clients, you could search your city's homepage on Kapow and you could search by location, price point, headcount, theme. You know, it could be axe throwing, it could be paintball, it could be knocker ball, it could be skydiving, it could be a farm to table experience. Like really cool shit. Yeah. I've sworn three times it's, now. Oh, it, don't let my my kids hear this. All right. Okay. <laughs> Um, no, they've heard it all before. That's okay. Um, so this was, no one had really done this before because you could have, you know, there's a lot of logistics that go into planning an event. And with basically three clicks, you'd, you'd have a fully curated event. And so major value add for a client, you know, could be Boston Scientific. It could be Salesforce. It could be a, a startup or anybody, right? And then you know, for the, the people that are going to the event, we tried to make it unique and pair it with celebrities or an experience that you would you normally wouldn't have had. Yeah. Right? Not just That's cool. The, yeah, it, it was experiential, right? Yeah. We doubled down on that. Um, so I loved the the feel. The office was gorgeous, you know, it was on Wacker and Wells in Chicago, right overlooking the Chicago River. And you could see Lake Michigan. There was a bar in the office. Um you know, so we would have wine with our clients and it was, that was part of the kind of the lifestyle and what went into creating events and experiences. Uh, so we moved from Chicago. I was the, the local GM from Minneapolis, hired a great team. Um, there was five of us, I think six actually, working right downtown uh, at the AT&T Tower on like 9th and Marquette. Um, built it from scratch. I got the chance to hire some great people and uh, we followed the Groupon trajectory, right? Land grab. Uh, we had some venture capital behind us. We had some budget, right? Um, we had fun events as a team, but we, we worked really hard. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I had to push our team because we had really audacious goals. If we had to launch, we had 45 days to launch 30 venues, fully curated, fully curated experiences. So Walker Art Center, Travail, like some kick-ass places. Um, and, and so to convince these venues to bring us in when we're brand new was a feat, but we pulled it off because I had a great team and we worked together and um, and they were pros. I mean, we hired a lot of people with event planning experience. And um, yeah, I'm actually getting chills thinking about it. That that uh, that ended abruptly, however, because the you know company was... Um, struggled to raise a subsequent round of funding and they since got acquired. Hmm. Yeah. And so what do you think? I, I know very little about raising money. What do you, th- so with the presumed success of what was going down and successful launches into these, what led to that difficulty in raising money? I don't know, to be honest with yeah. you. I, w- I wasn't a part of those conversations. Hmm. Um, you know, at the time, what year was this? 2014, 2015? No, it would have been later than that. It would have been uh, like tw- around 2016. 
at the time, the uh, the companies that were actually raising money were like Airbnb or Uber or Lyft, right? I think the venture capital landscape uh, was pretty competitive, but yeah. only for a few companies that, that raised a ton of capital. And so if you weren't those handful of outliers, you weren't able to raise much money. Right. And, you know, when when you raise money, especially that amount, and you hire that many people, expectations are super high. Right. Because the investors want, you know, a strong ROI. And if uh, certain metrics aren't hit, like, tough decisions have to be made. Yeah. And at this point, we're expecting our second child, right? And so I thought, wow, like, got to go back to the drawing board. And so this is... 2014, 2015. Don't quote me on that. I got to check my dates. Everything's been a blur right? How the last 10 years of my life. Well, the easiest way to be to go back would be what year do you found Humble Nut Butter? Because I find that it's much easier to remember what was going on during that time than any right. other flow. So if you go back to when was Humble Nut Butter founded? So I had one more stop after Kapow. Yeah, here we go. I sold, I sold supply chain software for about two years, mm -hmm. uh, leading a small team. Um, and... Uh, that was for a great company, uh, financially stable, um, selling to you know supply chain software. Not necessarily my my passion mm -hmm. or, or cup of tea, um, but we had some talented folks and uh, we we kicked ass, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, but humble to answer your question was the idea came to us in the fall of 2017. Okay, so let me back up for a second. I know we've been jumping around over the course of my career. Specifically, you know, I've had a lot of ideas, business ideas uh, that I just simply just didn't execute on. And Jess and I, you know, we've, we've now been married. God, our anniversary is coming up, Rob. June 15th. Uh, be six years. Sounds like you just remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell her. Don't tell her. Um, so, yeah, we, we've had a lot of ideas. Most of our ideas have been, you know, geared towards healthy food and beverage. Mm -hmm. We came really close to launching an apple cider vinegar beverage company in Chicago. This is like eight years ago now. Jess had bad heartburn with her first pregnancy. Uh, she went online looking for remedies. She didn't want to take Tums or Alka-Seltzer and, and apple cider vinegar kept popping up as a remedy. And there's a bunch of health benefits to, for apple cider vinegar. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about that, I, I thought, like, what, we should be consuming this more. Like, why mm -hmm. aren't humans drinking this like they are? Because it's disgusting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Straight up. <laughs> yeah, straight up. It is disgusting. But... I take a shot before he heavy uh, carb days. What, yeah, do you? Yeah, it helps with carb regulation during, uh, like, pre-meal. And it's shot of that straight is like... It's harsh. You're like, oh, well, a shot of whiskey is hard. Like, no, that makes a shot of whiskey look like a nice, calm beverage. It's right. aggressive. And it's hard on the esophagus. Yeah, so. highly acidic, highly aggressive. I've got a recipe I'll share with you offline. You, you right. can't have it on the podcast, though. <laughs> um, so we developed three flavors. I took it to one of my little neighborhood grocers in Wicker Park, and they said, listen, if you're ready, we will buy this from you now. And I said, okay, I'm not ready. I'm making this illegally in my kitchen. Let me get back to you. And we did more research and realized the timing wasn't right for a variety of reasons. Okay, but so that was in the back of my mind. Like, should we have done something with apple cider vinegar? Meanwhile, two jobs later, I've been in sales, uh, knowing I wanted to do something different and, and kind of make a bet on myself. Fall of 2017, both of our kids are in bed for the night. Uh, Jess and I, at this point, for years, as consumers, we've been seeking out snacks that were not sweet, that were tasty, but also nutritious, right? And we would have like hummus and beef jerky. Like that was it. Like why is there no other option? Like and not chips, like not a bunch of carbs, not anything loaded with dairy. Like I can't believe there's no, there's nothing else to go to. And we'd also watch this documentary called Fed Up. 
You mm-hmm. seen that? Yeah. Okay. So we were outraged by the overconsumption of sugar and refined sugars and how big food played a part of that. That rabbit hole, that's a deep one, man. The I forget what year, but it's like the 50s where the sugar corporation or sugar industry, whatever it is, paid lobby, paid scientists off to go off and say fat is the problem. Fat is what's bad for you. Sugar is not bad for you. Don't worry about it. And that that laid true for like 40, 50 a years before it really came back. And it's... That's I, I love conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I love conspiracy <laughs> sure. theories. I'm definitely not, but it's it's almost like it's almost like watching reality TV where you're like, this is terrible. I want to consume as much of this as possible. Yeah. And that was one where like, oh wait, that is completely true. Like there's verified sources across the board. Scientists straight up paid off about sugar. It like so in America for 50 years it's been like, don't eat fat. Don't eat fat. And then Sugar is really the thing that's like driving so many of the issues in our country. Right. And Fed Up highlighted that, you know, in the 90s when we had this low fat slash no fat movement, diabetes and, and uh, obesity skyrocketed mm. because they're injecting these products with sugar because they took the fat out. So that really pissed us off. Um, it's, it's probably nine o'clock at night. It was the fall of 2017. And Jess and I wanted the snack. We went into our kitchen to see what we had. And we had hummus, of course. We had popcorn. We had chips and salsa. We had cheese and crackers. We were uninspired by all of those things. But we also had nuts and random spices like turmeric and rosemary and truffle zest. And and Jess asked this question, why are all the nut butters sweet or plain, but you can get nuts that are smoked or Cajun or barbecue? And um, I thought, all right, well, that's an interesting question. But I had another idea on my mind, which I can't tell you about yet. But... The more we researched the market and realized that there's something to be had here because nut butter is satiating. It doesn't take a lot to satisfy you. Um, and you know, with a savory option, it's far more culinary and versatile than the standard like use for the PB&J. And uh, we thought, okay, there's something here. And so we spent a year on the recipes, just created all of the recipes by, you know, from scratch. She's talented in the kitchen, but she's not a trained chef. And I've got a decent palate. And so that's. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm going to lose this thought. Uh, Go t- for it. 2017, companies like Justin's Nut Butter at this point are doing very well. Yeah, I think he had been acquired by Hormel. Right. At that point. So at this point, the concept of a. Because if you said nut butter, they'd be like, that sounds. I don't know what you just said. It sounds gross. But at this point, the idea of a nut butter that's not peanut butter is is pretty widely accepted that this is yeah. this is a thing. Yeah, Justin's I think definitely exposed the masses to you know what a, a better alternative could be. Like almond butter, almond butter, cashew, yeah. etc. Right. Uh, but we realized all of the nut butters are either sweet or plain. Yeah. So um, spent a year in the recipes. Just created all of these, and we tasted every single batch. And then we were surveying friends and family on the attributes and what they thought of the product. What would they pay for it? Um, And we made some refinement based on that feedback. And we thought, all right, at this point, we're not getting any younger. You know, I've worked for five companies at this point. Like, it's time to make a bet on myself again and go all in. And so our our go-to market strategy was the Twin Cities Farmers Markets. Mm -hmm. So we started at the Excelsior Farmers Markets. Uh, That happened on Tuesdays. It worked for our schedule. And then we went to the Linden Hills Farmer's Market. And from June of 17, no, I'm sorry, this is now 18. So June of 18 to December of 18, we did like 23 farmer's markets. 
uh, when I say we, when I say we was basically me because Jess was at home with her two young children, mm-hmm. uh, and she helped as much as she could. And I think we sold out of like eight or nine of those markets, and mm-hmm. so that was validating uh, that people weren't just being nice; they were actually like spending money on our product. So that created a little bit of a groundswell, and that allowed us to get into some of the local co-ops here. And at that time, what do you uh, what what size jar are you selling? What's the price point on it compared to if you were to do a peanut butter or like a Justin's nut butter? Yeah, so uh, the jars that you see here um, are really our original version. Uh, we spent some time um, looking at different logos and labels and kind of color schemes. There's a lot of white on the market. You know, there's not as much black as you might expect. So we would actually take mock-ups into the stores and set them on the shelf and see you know, how it looked against the mm-hmm. our perceived competitors. Um, we... Frankly, we didn't know what to price it at. I mean, we knew that we had to have enough margin to make this a viable business, a sustainable business. Um, but we started, you know, at $12 per jar at the Excelsior Farmers Market, our first ever. And we did super well. And we realized that's not enough margin for us to sustain because we're buying the best quality ingredients we can mm-hmm. find. And we're using glass, right? There's a, there's a cost associated with that. And then all of our herbs and spices are certified organic. And the cashews we use are fair trade and organic. So we're not we're not bullshitting here. Like we're 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 getting the highest quality ingredients that you can get, and and I think people that acknowledge that are willing. They realize that you get what you pay for. Well, and it's pricing is something that I've learned a lot about, and one of them that you realize is that if you the if you price competitively, you're going to get the same customer that's used to deep deals, that's used to the normal pricing. And if their main reason for buying your product is because it was on sale or the price was close enough to what I got already that I decided to change, it's probably not going to be a permanent customer, a lifelong customer. Uh, Even if the taste is awesome, if it's their secondary reason for buying it. And the, the odd thing is that if you price based on your ingredients and you have really high ingredients, you're going to be higher priced but that person is buying you because of your ingredients, because of the flavor. Exactly. And it's funny because for an 8.4 ounce or 8.8 ounce jar, a lot of people might say that $12 even, which is where you started, seems yeah. aggressive, but yeah. they've also never tasted what you're doing. Right. And that's why sampling is so vital. And that's why the farmer's markets were, were really important for us because people hadn't had this product before. And you know some of the questions we got at the farmers markets led to packaging decisions. Like the sticker you see on the top of the lid um, says "Try Me On," right? So sandwiches, wraps, veggies, crackers with our turmeric, maple, pecan. It's got a little bit of sweetness to it. To be it. clear, "Try Me On," and then it lists food, not just "Try Me On." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is not a T-shirt. That would yeah. be something we wouldn't allow on the uh, podcast. That's why uh, you're the podcast director here. Right? <laughs> that's why. That's why you're the man. So. Um, that you know, those questions and conversations were, were vital for us, and, and you know, understanding how the consumer is going to think about our product. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is versatile, right? There's a lot that you can do with this, and it's not a, a single use. You get 17 servings in it. You know, people will go or used to go to restaurants, uh, and we'd spend 12 bucks for a glass of wine that we'd finish in 30 minutes, mm-hmm. right? Like, you get 17 uses here. You can do a lot with it, and those. Those conversations can happen when you're talking to people directly. When you take that off the table, you can't sample at grocery stores. You're faced with a whole different host of challenges, which is why we we tried to go omni-channel from the get-go, right? So online, D2C, 
uh, direct to grocery stores. And then, you know, we have some restaurant accounts as well. And we're thinking about food service down the road when that comes back. From, a thing. So yeah. going from farmers markets, who were the first people you approached and what was their feedback in terms of like the taste, the product itself? And then of course, pricing was probably a big discussion. Yeah. When, when we sold out, essentially, I think we came close to selling out of the very first market and we realized, okay, well, we can actually maybe charge a little bit more because we wanted to give people a good deal because we were actually nervous. Like we didn't know how it would go. Um, so one of the first customers we had was Beth Dooley, who is just a great person. She won a James Beard Award for uh, her writing of The Sioux Chef, hmm. uh, a Native American inspired cookbook. Yeah. And uh, we met her at the Linden Hills Farmer's Market and she loved what we were doing and said, hey, you should take this to Lakewinds. And so I, I heeded her advice and we went to Lakewinds and, um, you know, a little bit of back and forth and we got in and they've been a great partner. And then Lakewinds for context, uh, for context, all natural co-op, very, very heavy organic focus. Yeah. Yeah. Very quality local yeah. sourcing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They give local brands a chance. Right. And that's a great example of a retailer that price is not going to be the first thing they ask you. They're going to ask you, is it organic? Is it local? Is right. it independently owned? Exactly. Like yeah, they they're mindful of the values behind the brands. Right. And, uh, but it's also important for us to be smart about and have self-awareness about where our stuff would not sell. There's mo most grocers, we have an approach because it's, it's not a fit. Like this current iteration of Humble uh, is not gonna be a fit at the common conventional grocery store. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, that's not a knock on those consumers, it's just, you gotta know your lane. <clears throat> um, when we, ha we have innovation in the works that, that is more broad appealing, but we're fine focusing on a more narrow channel because that channel, you can go deep and wide in that channel. The channel's big enough. Yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing about branding and what you focus on is that if you try to reach everybody all at once, you're not gonna reach anybody because when you don't have the resources, if you're not a Coke, you're not a Pepsi to just pound, every, pound it into everybody's head with a huge marketing budget, you need to be known for one thing and one thing only, and you need to do that really, really well. And so it, I'm curious, I'm assuming you're gonna have to do this offline about what the more broad reaching product is, but when you build a reputation on quality, you're then almost allowed to try other things that are more broad appealing because you've built a reputation for doing it quality focused. And then even if it's something that's more approachable or uh, more price point sensitive, that they know you're doing that version of it the best. And that's, that's what Justin's actually did recently was they launched a peanut butter. Yeah. And you think about that and you're like, well, that's not innovation. Like I could go get 10 different peanut butters, but they built a reputation on a $10 jar of almond butter versus a Two fifty three dollars. I don't know what Skippy goes for three bucks. Probably yeah. And so, you know that when they release release a peanut butter, that it's going to be a great peanut butter, all natural. And I think what you're doing in terms of flavor and quality and organic focus, there is that opportunity to be more broad appealing with another product, but by leading the way with yes yeah. the super high end of the category. Right. Yeah, you, you have to build the trust with, with the customers first and you have to deliver for them. And it's it's more than just a quality product. Like your service has to be good and or great actually. Mm -hmm. And you have to be transparent. I think nowadays people can, can look between the lines and smell bullshit when, when they when they smell it or see it, I guess. And, and so we're skipping again. Where were you making this stuff for the farmer's market? Yeah, so uh, we got the cottage food license first yep. in Minnesota, 
Uh, so that's where we started, making it in our home kitchen. And then quickly realized, all right, like we're going to scale this because there's more demand. Yeah. Uh, so we went to Lynn Hall. Great spot. Um, they had an incubator kitchen in, in, you know, in the middle mm-hmm. of the restaurant. So that was our first commercial kitchen. We outgrew that, I think, in the first three months. Just needed more space. And so we went to JHAP. Uh, in Golden Valley, which is a great spot. Uh, they've got this immaculate commercial kitchen inside of a residence for adults with disabilities. Um, and as a result of that transition, we got introduced to a gal named Nicole Rabinowitz, who owns Inclusive Networking. And she um, provides customized employment. So she helps job seekers of all abilities find meaningful work. Uh, and so as a result of Nicole's help, uh, we've, we've found our production assistant who's tremendous. His name is Tim. Um, you'll see more about Tim on Instagram. Uh, so he's our production assistant. We also have a production manager named Alex. So we have a very lean team, but they're great. And, um, so JHAP has been good to us. It's allowed us to grow and expand, but ultimately provide meaningful work to Tim. And he helps us cause we need the help. So he helps with labeling, um, packaging, shipping, and he knows the drill, man. I mean, he's he's punctual. Mm-hmm. He's got a tremendous work ethic. Uh, we have fun together. Yeah. We, we he loves sports. We've we got a lot to talk about. And so, did that move? Was that from the farmers market into grocery stores that you start to move into the larger production facility now? Have a production assistant. Yeah. You know, we we had you know we wanted to make sure we could we could balance supply and demand. So a lot of our growth has been intentionally deliberate, right? Like, I haven't. You know, there's there's major chains that I haven't even reached out to yet. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure we could fulfill for the existing accounts, knowing that Jess still works full time for the University of Minnesota. So we've got these constraints, right? There's mm-hmm. only so many hours in the day. We only have so much available bandwidth. So um, we've scaled slowly but steadily, and um, you know, we started with Lakewinds, then we we got into the Linden Hills Co-op. So Lakewinds has three locations: Linden Hills Co-op. In our neighborhood, there was a lot of pent-up demand from the farmer's markets that got us into Linden Hills Co-op, and then the Wedge, and then a handful of restaurant accounts and bakeries. Mm -hmm. Um, Amazon was an early play for us. Uh, Of course, our website, and then there's some online marketplaces like uh, Bubble Goods. There's some more that are are popping up um, that you should be thinking about too for Folly, which we can talk about. And then Pop-Up Grocer, uh, which is a pretty innovative concept. that's a, a traveling pop-up kind of boutique grocery concept that features innovative products, stuff that's not as common. And, and so when you're going to these new places, uh, what is your sales pitch? Do, was there a lot of resistance uh, to it because of the price or because of the quality and the taste of it? Was it pretty widely accepted to these quality-focused um, co-ops and restaurants? Yeah, no, it, it took some some conversing, but I think... The second that people try it, their eyes light up, yeah, and because uh, they really haven't had anything like it before. So that's generally the catalyst for a productive conversation. And then you know, I think when they understand what we're trying to accomplish, like we're not doing this to be famous. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to we solved a need that we had as consumers, right? right. Everybody knows the damage that sugar is doing. So um, you know. We want to combat that, but also give you products that are, that are delightful and surprising. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm able to get that opportunity to tell to a grocery buyer, uh, it makes for a productive conversation. We also had some help from Fresh Coast Collective that did our photography early on, <clears throat> and they made a great video for us. And so 
we tried to, to, to pair a great product with great visuals and then weave the story in there. Yeah, the, the video and visuals early on is very important. I, I'm, you know I'm going to highlight that because yeah. I'm sure a lot of your emails initially to chains, they're like, who the heck are you? Like, oh, you, another farmer's market person that wants me to be carrying their store. Overspending or over allocating resources to video and visual early on is so important because being able to include a little something extra in that email that you're trying to get a meeting is incredibly important. I agree, um, especially if you want to scale nationally. Yeah. Right? It has to look dialed. Yeah. But more than that, it's got to look dialed, but the product's got to back it up too. And the and argument against that I've heard is, well, I don't want to look too polished. I want them to know it's independently owned. I want, well, you can't scale on that. And I don't even mean you can't scale from like a, a growth in production. You go, oh no, we'll figure out how to grow. But if your customers early on are buying your product because it's, oh, it's scrappy, it's not professional, well, then when at some point you do level up and you do upgrade that production, your initial customers aren't going to like what you're doing. Right. And so it's like creating, uh, I've always said with Folly, I tr people think it's bigger than it is because of the stuff that we do. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd rather explain to somebody and say, no, it's two of us and we're independently owned and have them be surprised than have them say, oh, no, we're bigger than you think and have them be like, oh, really, you don't seem like it. Right. And that's with Humble Nut Butters early on, you're like, the branding's clean. It's like, it exudes what you're trying to do. It's quality focus. It's like, but it still has that like quality authenticity. Yeah. And it's a tough balance. It is a it tough is. balance to not be corporate and to not be like, right now is a great example with the way things are culturally going on in Minneapolis is so many responses to everything are too polished. They're too clean and people are too concerned about what the general masses might think. It's, right. it's almost thinking of marketing in the same way you're targeting your customers as being like true to yourself in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, heavy times in Minneapolis, yeah. by the way. Uh, but I agree with you. I think, um, in order for progress to be made, you have to have those conversations. You know, it's tough to draw a parallel to, you know, a CPG product and, you know, the deep-seated racism that we're facing in the Twin Cities. But if you just sit around and overanalyze, you're not going to make any progress. So you got to start somewhere. And then you can make modifications by, you know, meeting people in the middle and where they're at without compromising your values, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so launching in these co-ops... Do the sales immediately start picking up? Do you have to start sampling? How were your expectations for launching at retail versus how they actually were? Our expectations were that we didn't know what to expect. Yeah. We thought it would be an uphill climb because there's a lot of education that has to go in when you when you have a, a, a new product, Yeah. right? Um, and so we knew that sampling was gonna be a big part of the strategy. And, you know, if we can have those conversations, we see great results, you know, during a three hour demo. Mm -hmm. And we were doing that often. Yeah. And that's been shut off now. So that's a challenge. And we just launched in Whole Foods, seven locations in Minnesota, um, which was a, a year and a half in the making, by the way. You know, with Whole Foods, we knew, to my point earlier about, you know, knowing your lane, we suspect Whole Foods could be a great place for us. It's too early to tell. Like we're not even on the shelves at all of the seven stores yet. That, that was educational for me. I assumed like we deliver and a few days later we'd be on the shelves. Well, that didn't happen at all, seven locations. So, you know, there's a lot of complexities and they're, they're also facing a lot of challenges themselves. Being in the midst of a pandemic, now we've got riots going on and uh, lots of tension, you know, across the entire country. So um, 
we think Whole Foods could be a great place for us because the 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 shopper there is generally more focused on uh, quality and, and better for you ingredients, and they might be a little bit more well versed and know when to smell BS, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and Whole Foods won't even bring it in if it's BS, right? Yeah, I, that is it's a tough thing in coffee because there, as a side tangent, the big companies have been so good at driving home certain messages that now the consumer is educated in a way that if you don't follow that exact messaging, they think it's bad. It's a whole side tangent. Yeah. Um, and so what I, cause I saw the announcement recently that you launched in whole foods, how close to the pan was this mid pandemic? The whole process took about a year and a half. And how, how can a sales process take a year and a half? Don't you get a, don't you get a no at some point and you go, okay, this is done or a yes. You know this. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know the answer to the question. I'm pandering, but I want to yeah. hear. Yeah, no, you, you get it uh, because you have to have persistence and uh, not persistence in a way that is, that is uh, annoying. Uh, but if you believe in what you're selling and you're selling a good product that consumers will like, like it's going to benefit them. So to a degree, you also have to just be patient and um, kind of pick your spots. So um, eventually, you know, there's communication that stalled. I just tried to follow the model that uh, we had from the farmer's markets. You build a groundswell, uh, you get feedback from, from directly from people and you take that up, up the chain. And so I tried to develop some relationships with, with the store level Whole Foods folks, gave them our product, got feedback from them. They recognized an opportunity uh, in, in the set, right? Because all the nut butters are, are sweet or plain. They realized that consumers want things like turmeric or they're interested in, in shiitake mushrooms. Yeah, the ingredients on these three, it's t- turmeric, maple, truffle herb, walnut, uh, turmeric, maple, pecan, I should say, truffle herb, walnut, you've got sun-dried basil, cashew, or as the Brits like to say, basil. <laughs> yeah, right. And that that's- Or turmeric, I'm glad you didn't say turmeric, so props to you. Yeah. <laughs> There's an it's, R it's in turmeric, there. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, we launched, you know, they said good news, we'll bring you on. And honestly, we were nervous because this is mid pandemic. And, you know, what we saw, you know, towards the latter half of March, if you paid attention to like what was selling on the shelves, people were panic shopping. Everybody's buying psychology was very negative. They were going to get in the store and get out, Mm -hmm. right? They're getting toilet paper and paper towels and shelf stable stuff. So even great companies like Bonds of Pasta, their stuff's just sitting on the shelves, Mm -hmm. right? Initially, like within the first two or three weeks, I do think that the psychology has regained a little bit more optimism. And so you see, you know, more normal buying behavior is happening, but it's still not to where it was pre-pandemic when the the economy was strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Jess and I talked a lot about this and, you know, kind of referred to some friends and got their opinion. Um, You know, some are, you know, CPG folks like Seven Sundays Muesli Company. Uh, we got their opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're national at Whole Foods, and they were very hopeful with their response. So, um, we decided to give it a go. Whole Whole Foods gives you a shot. It's like our dream account. Mm-hmm. F it, you know, go for it. Yeah. Like, um, so you know, it's still early. You know, we just delivered a couple weeks ago, uh, and hopefully, we'll get to a point where we can sample again. And if we can't, we'll have to contract that out. Mm-hmm. And we'll have to do some creative things digitally, which I'll pick your brain on too, because you've obviously got an eye for that and an act for digital, you know, promotions, if you will. 
Um, so there's no real playbook for this. Mm-hmm. There's no playbook for launching a differentiated product in a brand new marketplace during a pandemic. Yeah. And then you add racial tensions and everything else on top of that. So it's an odd time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, things will regain some level of normalcy in time. Yeah. And that's that's the difficulty in small business right now, especially in Minnesota. Is everything is so not normal. And I'd say that in like the most intense kind of way. Uh, and that this is a conversation purely outside of that. And it almost feels weird to talk about things like this at this time, but it's, it's almost like you have to compartmentalize to it in a pretty intense degree during yeah. times like this, that, and it's, it's hard, it's hard mentally, almost physically in a way to balance things during this time because of that. And, uh, but th- I'm excited. I'd love in like a year, We'll do a, we should do a follow-up of some sort. Yeah. I'll put it on the calendar of my own and say, reach back out to you. Let's do a year check-in because it, the, one of the few things that like gives me hope during this time or, uh, almost excitement, which is so hard to find is that because of how humans work, that we'll, we'll all get through it. And because of the product you have and the quality you have, you're less susceptible to competitors and you have very loyal customers that you're not going to probably thrive during this time, but you'll get by. And then fall is the same way. We're definitely down a lot versus last year now, but we have loyal customers and a product that people like and quality focus. But uh, a a year from now, it'll be super interesting to look back on this date where we are now mid pandemic, mid rioting happening, racial tensions, not knowing what is going to be of our city in a month uh, and what the, what the dynamic there will be. But uh, yeah. And that puts us, that puts us over an hour. Uh, And there's obviously a lot more stuff to touch on Um, Amazon. I'd love to pick your brain about that both offline and potentially just hop back on here because I know you are doing really well on Amazon. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add or include, uh, about humble nut butter or just where you guys are trying to go with it? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me yeah. again, Rob. I appreciate it. That, that hour flew by yeah. it was a fluid conversation. Um, and I would love to come back and, and, and talk about where we're at both in terms of as, as a society and a, a community here in the twin cities. And then also talk about our respective businesses. Um, no, I think hopefully folks have a good sense for what we're trying to do. I mean, we're, we're transparent. You know, we want to deliver quality products always. You know, as we evolve, our mission is to provide products that delight and surprise. And so we want to lead with the product. And then from there, you know, you can apply marketing and you can apply messaging. But uh, we're personable people. You know, I try to respond to every single Amazon re- review we get. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's, that's sustainable. In fact, Jess told me last night it's not sustainable when I'm up responding to every review, even the negative ones. But knowing you, you're like, dang it, now that you said it, now I, I, now now I, have, to, I don't have to show you that. Yes. No, this is. Yeah, and now I'm accountable, right? Yeah. And now I announced it. So, um, yeah, we want to be, we, you know, we're focused on quality, but we also want to be approachable. And, um, you know, we, we want to grow. Uh, and we want to make this, you know, uh, a consciously capitalistic company where uh, we can show that you can make a good product that people want and need, but you do so in an honest way. That's not self-fulfilling. And we can hopefully eventually become a place where people want to work and we can provide more meaningful work to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done that on a very small scale. Now we just need to grow. Yeah. 
Uh, I like it, man. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much did this like 95% just so I could get samples. I'm going to be, if I'm being completely hey, honest. Hey, I'm not mad at you. I just, I'm I, not I, mad I, at you. Yeah, I can hardly stand you, but these are so good. You know, I was like, of course. I probably can't just ask for them. That'd be rude. So I guess I we'll do a podcast. No, uh, I think you, you yourself have a unique position with your background. Uh, almost uh, we have a similar background yours to a much more extreme level of experience of that like halfway in between of the 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 passion for business and really enjoying that side of it but also having a product that fulfilled a need in your life and the depth of flavor of this it's like very obvious that you can always tell when somebody finds a category is like we need to make something in that category they make it it's just not it's not quite there, but that's not the case with Humble Nut Butter, man. So I'll end this episode as I do every other one and say have a good day.